Thank you, team. I'll ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. If you don't know where Jonah is, it's in the Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. And if you reach Micah, Nahum, you've gone too far. So Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Um, and before we dive into the book of Jonah, um, let me just let you know what's happening for, the, I guess, the, the madness behind the method that we've been employing. Um, I started the book of James because Dave Barker is going to be coming here next week, October 15, 22, 29. Dr. Dave Barker will be talking about the wisdom literature. Uh, Jessica... What's he talking about next week? Okay. He's doing an overview of all the wisdom books. So he's not talking about Song of Songs? Rags. That's why I asked him to come. (laughs) Man. Okay. Last time I preached on Song of Songs, well, we had Daniel. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, (laughs) and we are grateful to the Lord for him. (laughs) Um, The reason why we're talking about the book of James is that we wanted to fit the theme of wisdom um, into this year. Um, In fact, this year has been about the challenge of living wisely in a fallen world. So from Ezra and Nehemiah, the Gospel of Mark, the book of Daniel, and now the book of James, we've been talking about what it means to follow Jesus wisely. And so Dave Barker's coming to give an overview of the wisdom books next week, and then jump into Job and Proverbs, and then for Poinsettia Sunday, he's going to be talking about Ecclesiastes. Lessons from a funeral home. And it's all oriented for us to understand what it means to be wise, to fear the Lord, and to live in relationship with Him so that we may shine as lights in a dark and sinful world. Now, along with that, October just turned into a missions month. It wasn't my plan, but we had Peter Humphreys last week, talking about their mission. Next week, we're going to have Sarah Isaac from, Hope's, from Amani School, talking about the work of Amani School in Tanzania. And then on the 29th, we're going to have Safe Families talking about the work of Safe Families. So there seems to be the theme of missions perking up, um, poking through, which really fits into what it means To live wisely. To live wisely is to be on mission for Jesus. And and so this Sunday, we're going to talk about gratitude and mission from the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 2. See, last week, Peter Humphreys challenged us about the motives that drive our lives. And that was a fitting challenge to orient us towards Thanksgiving weekend, as we sang earlier. 
For every day I have on earth is given by our King. So I will give my life, my all, to love and follow Him. That captures what David Powell talks about. Uh, yeah, David Powell talks about of being grateful for the unfailing grace of God towards us brings with it a call to devote one's entire life in response to God's grace and his mighty acts. But let's be honest with each other and with ourselves. Sometimes our blind spots get in the way. And to that end, I'd like us to reflect on the story of Jonah and allow the story of Jonah to examine our hearts. As we've said in James chapter 1, we talked about the mirror of Scripture. Let it be a mirror of our hearts. And so let's begin by reading Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving from within the belly of the whale or of the fish. Jonah chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord as God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called out for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. He said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And Jonah, frankly, had every reason to be grateful because he knew he deserved death because of his disobedience. Turn with me to chapter 1. The Lord had instructed Jonah to go to Nineveh, but instead he set out for Tarshish. You can see from the map, that's pretty much the equivalent of me being told to preach the gospel in Montreal and then getting on a plane to Vancouver instead. Now, those of you who have driven with me would understand that that often happens because I'm directionally challenged. But that's not the case with Jonah. If you read Jonah chapter 1 and verse 3, you would see that the text is piling on verbs, action words, to show that Jonah was deliberately disobeying God. Look at verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. He was spending a fair amount of money trying to run away from God. But God would not let him get away. 
Verse 4, we are told, The Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And the situation was so hopeless that the pagan sailors who are accustomed to storms started praying. Except the problem was their prayers were pointless. Because the gods to whom these pagan soldiers prayed were just figments of their imagination. The only person on that ship whose prayers had a chance of being heard was Jonah, the prophet of Yahweh. Except we are told in verse 5, having gone down to Joppa and down to the port, he went down below deck. And he was down for the count. He was fast asleep. Uncaring of the danger that he had brought on the ship. And even after the captain, in verse 6, had awakened him and pleaded with him to pray to his God. You will notice that Jonah had no prayers to offer. Neither was he unwilling to admit that he was the cause of their distress. The only reason why he fessed up was, according to verse 7 and 8, they cast lots, and he was identified as the cause, the culprit. And so he had to come clean. He tells them in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the sailors were terrified. What do you mean you're running away from the God who made the sea and the dry land? You are running away from the inescapable God. Are you nuts? And yet Jonah was unconcerned. Which raises a question for you and me. How often do we despise God by disobeying him? despite knowing his majestic greatness. See, the danger for church people like you and me is that we get so familiar with God that we lose our awe of him. That was what was going on for Jonah. And while they were talking, the sea was getting even rougher. And so Jonah tells the sailors, there's only one way to get rid of the storm. Get rid of me. Throw me overboard. That sounds very noble and self-sacrificing, doesn't it? Except what that meant was that Jonah would rather disobey God or would rather die than obey God's command, sending him to Nineveh. And he was also forcing the sailors to commit murder. But here's the irony of it. This is a prophet of Yahweh. These are pagan sailors, but the pagan sailors want to do the right thing. And so they refused to throw Jonah into the sea. They tried their best to row the ship back to land. We don't want to kill you. We don't want to murder you. We will work hard. We will do our best to get us back safely to land. But the sea grew wilder, and it became clear that Jonah had to go. And up to this point, he still would not pray. Again, the only people who would pray 
or the pagan sailors. But this time, they cry out to Yahweh. Look at verse 14. Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And they throw him overboard. Now, the sailors expected Jonah to drown. Frankly, so did Jonah. His heart was so hardened, he preferred death to obedience. But still, God would not let him go. We are told in verse 17, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And we will take the text at face value. This is God miraculously saving Jonah. And while Jonah was in the belly of the fish, he recognized that God had shown him undeserved kindness in sparing his life. And so again he prays. Or so he prays. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. He obviously knows his theology, right? Trouble is, he was willfully ignoring the words of Samuel spoken to Saul. Remember? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. For all his theological accuracy, Jonah is not sorry for his disobedience. You notice that? He's grateful for being alive, but he's not sorry for being disobedient. And you see the irony, don't you? He condemns idolaters. And yet we are told in verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16, that these pagan soldiers that he condemns feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. These men repented of their idolatry and were converted to the worship of Yahweh. That is a bigger miracle than the fish swallowing up, swallowing up an unrepentant Jonah. In fact, you know, the bigger irony here is that the fish is actually more obedient than Jonah. We are told... Jump down to chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I guess even the fish was sick of Jonah. <laughs> but God still graciously would not give up on Jonah. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This time Jonah recognizes that resistance is futile. But it doesn't mean that he is submitting wholeheartedly to God's call on his life. Verse 4, the message that he preached is summed up as, Forty more days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In the Hebrew, it's five words long. Doesn't sound like a very good message, does it? Now, he might have said more than that. But the way the author of the book of Jonah summarizes it is meant to imply that that was all Jonah really wanted to say. Jonah wasn't pleading for the people to repent. He was gloating over the city's impending destruction. I'm putting together a preaching cohort for next summer. Guys, don't do like Jonah. (laughs) But you know, there's an even greater miracle that takes place. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Despite this terrible sermon, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Imagine that. The whole city, from the greatest to the least, including the king, turn from their evil ways and their violence to fast and call upon God. The worst sermon ever preached was the most effective sermon ever. And it's definitive proof of Jonah's statement in chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation comes from Yahweh, from the Lord. It is God who gives repentance, and he can use the dullest instrument to accomplish his purposes. And the Lord, because he is gracious and compassionate, spared Nineveh. And that's the wonder and glory of God's gracious character. It is a grace that is expressed most fully in sending his son to die for all those who would trust in him so that we would be saved from his wrath, that which we celebrate every Sunday as we sing of the cross. Now imagine, imagine, let's dream a bit, if that were to happen here in Guelph. How'd you feel? Everyone from the most vicious criminal to the MP and the MPP of Guelph coming to Christ. We'd be over the moon, wouldn't we? It's not about filling up Crestwick's auditorium. Forget that. There wouldn't be enough space. But we'd be over the moon because that's why we're here. We're a base camp for believers, a lighthouse for the lost. And Jesus tells us there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Imagine 120,000 sinners who repent. Wow. Must have been a party in heaven. But not Jonah. 
Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He preached the most effective ever, and instead of bubbling with joy, he was burning with anger. Verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. And now he realized why he wouldn't go to Nineveh. He didn't want the people of Nineveh to be saved from God's wrath. These Assyrians were the enemies of Israel. For a self-righteous, patriotic, nationalist like Jonah, these wicked, immoral, cruel people deserved to be damned. Never mind that these pagan Assyrians believed God. Unlike the people of Israel, who persisted in their idolatrous rejection of Yahweh, their covenant Lord. And forget being grateful that God had spared his life. Look at Jonah's prayer in verse 2 and verse 3. Remember his prayer of thanksgiving, right? He's really grateful. Well, let's read verse 2 and verse 3. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Yeah, you heard right. That's not a misprint. Jonah is complaining about the very things we celebrate about God. That God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Can you imagine? Jonah is angry because he thinks God is wrong to show grace to people who don't deserve it. But I think we know Jonah is mistaken in several ways. First of all, grace is always undeserved, isn't it? That's why it's called grace. Second, Jonah himself acknowledged salvation comes from the Lord. So he had no right to question God's sovereign prerogative to show mercy on whom he would have mercy. Like, who does Jonah think he is? And most damningly, Jonah himself had just received God's grace and mercy, hadn't he? And yet he refuses to allow God to show grace and compassion to the Ninevites. How selfish can you get? Jonah wants to receive grace without being changed by that grace. And here's the rub. I see that in myself. I want God's grace, but I don't want it to change me. I've told you before about 
the, pa- the former pastor who killed his wife who happened to be a friend of ours. I wanted the guy to burn in hell for what he did. But this text rebukes my self-righteousness and pride. I have received grace from God in salvation. So who am I that I should keep God's grace to myself? And sadly, I'm not the only one. See, the book of Jonah fits into a genre called satire. A satire is meant to expose the wickedness of our own hearts. It's meant to make fun of the audience as they see themselves. Elliot Clark warns, we might assume Jonah's struggles would never be ours, but this is the power of satire. Its absurdity wakes us to reality. The reality is that many of us in the post-Christian West are tempted to respond to encroaching exile with the spirit of Jonah. Living in a hostile world, it's easy to despise our enemies. Surrounded by opponents, the most natural response is to angrily fight for our rights. When others ridicule and threaten us, we're inclined to respond accordingly, selectively choosing who deserves our kindness. And in so doing, forgetting God's undeserved grace to us in the first place. Instead of having compassion on the multitudes, it's easy to spend our time grumbling about modern-day tax collectors and sinners. But if the church is to be on mission, taking the good news of Christ to the world, we must beware the pharisaical spirit of Israel. This begins by acknowledging we're tempted to entertain the same prejudices as the prophet Jonah. Now, before you storm out in anger, please realize Jonah himself was not aware of his self-righteous arrogance. And neither are we. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. And in the providence of God, this text confronts us today because our God, who loves us more than we deserve, doesn't want us to leave us the way we are. In his compassion and grace, he pursues and corrects us. That's why God would not abandon Jonah. To Jonah's angry complaint, God responds with a question in verse 4. Is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah, you notice, doesn't even have the courtesy to respond. This is God you're talking to, man. Jonah doesn't answer. He'd gone out of Nineveh, in verse 5, to wait to see what would happen to the city. He was still hoping that God would destroy Nineveh anyway. And so to correct him, God graciously caused the plant to grow. 
to provide shade for Jonah in verse 6. And that made Jonah very happy. But the following day, just as God had provided a fish to save Jonah from drowning, God provided a worm to kill the plant. And then God sent a ferocious east wind that scorched Jonah as the sun blazed on his head while he was waiting for damnation to fall on Nineveh. And once again, Jonah gets mad and he wants to die. And once again, verse 9, God asks him, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? God was using the plant to expose Jonah's selfishness and arrogance. God was showing Jonah that he cared more for his personal comfort than for the souls of men and women. He had no compassion for them because he was all about himself. His heart was not in sync with God who cares for his image bearers and is not willing that Eddie should perish. I love the way Jonah ends with the heart of God. Hear the heart of God. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from the left and also many animals? That's God's heart. That's the heart that brought Jesus all the way from heaven to earth to Calvary's cross. As we talked about in catechism class today, to bear our sins, to suffer the wrath of God for our sins so that he might reconcile us to God. And if you're here and you haven't submitted yourself to this God, will you not bow the knee to this gracious and compassionate God who sent his son so that those who trust in him would be forgiven of their sins and become a child of God? Does he not deserve your love? And shouldn't we, we who have experienced that grace of God, should we not share the heart of God? Should we not be concerned for the city of Guelph and its 135,000 inhabitants, plus many animals, many of whom cannot tell their right hand from their left? Look, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anyone. This book isn't just meant to call us to repentance. It's meant to challenge us to respond rightly to the grace of God by showing others the compassion and grace we have received. God has graced us with his salvation so that we may know him and thus be like him more and more. So that we may share his heart, his compassion for the loss. I love the way the book of Jonah ends with God's heart. I love the way the book of Jonah ends without telling us how Jonah responded to God. 
And that's deliberate. Because what matters isn't Jonah's response, but our response. As one author says, it is confession, in confession of our sin, weakness, and failure that as believers in God's mercy, we open ourselves to the possibility of compassion toward others. The book is open-ended because the writer wants to throw the question back at us. How will we respond? Will we keep the gospel to ourselves? Or will we invite others into the grace that we have received from God? I pray that we who have received God's grace would be transformed by that same grace so that we would proclaim it to those around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are a gracious and compassionate God a God who demonstrated that grace and compassion, not only by sending a disobedient prophet to a pagan nation, but a God who sent no less than his son, the second person of the triune God, humbling himself to become a fully human being so that he may live the life that we could never live and offer to you the obedience that we could never give so that he fully pleased you and met the standard of divine righteousness so that he may lay down his life as our sacrifice and substitute so that through faith in him, our sins would be forgiven and his righteousness that fully pleased you would be credited to us in union with him. Oh Lord, thank you for your grace and forgive us for being so careless and forgetful of that grace. For seeking to keep that grace to ourselves because we're blind to others because of our selfishness. Oh Lord, may the mind of Christ that considered his being God being equal to the Father as something that he would not use to his own advantage, but rather as something that fitted him to serve as our Redeemer and Savior. May that same mind be in us. And thank you, Father, that your Spirit is at work in us day after day so that that very mind of self-giving humility would be reproduced in us. Oh Lord, teach us 
Teach us the lavishness of your love, the infinite riches of your grace, so that your love might grip us to live no longer for ourselves, but for him who for us died and rose again, so that we may delight to make Christ known in the city of Gulf and around the world. This we ask in Christ's name and for his sake.